Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Man from Uncle by Michael Avalone. Volume 6, Chapter 15, A Nice Little Place to Bomb. The plan was daring. It had to be. Events had worked to that point where no other plan of action was feasible. Waverly had consulted with whomever he had to consult, and the answer had come down on high. Find out about Orangeburg. When you are certain, blast it off the face of the earth. We'll take the consequences, whatever they may be. And so it was on a foggy night later that week, the United States Air Force C-47 roared through the heavens over Europe, bound for Obertiesendorf. Napoleon Solo sat in the passenger compartment. He was no longer sartorially elegant or well-groomed. Indeed, he was completely outfitted for a drop behind enemy lines. His flying suit was complete. Helmet, goggles, fern-lined parka. His most vital possession, however, was X-757, the specially devised Uncle Fire Explosive, which produced so much heat it could fuse an area to a depth of 10 feet. Judiciously placed at Orangeburg, X-757 could reduce the cemetery to a pit of molten lava in which rock, earth, wood coffins, and those hellish little capsules and their contents would lose their identities as separate substances. Solo's entire wardrobe was built for combat operation, map, pistol, and complete detonation kit. This included five pounds of nitro jelly spread harmlessly about his person. It was only when the mass was put together like butter for a cake and frosted with blasting caps that it would take on a different, far deadlier character. Seated across the aisle from him, beside a very worried-looking Jerry Terry, was Ilya Kiryakin, attired in exactly the same costume. The Russian's face wore a blissful smile. Inactivity dulled him. This investigation of a cemetery in Orangeburg was more to his liking. He patted the entrenching tools fastened to his pack. Jerry Terry was busy making adjustments on a two-way radio before her. Each man had a walkie-talkie handset, which could make instant contact if they remained within a five-mile radius of the plane. Ten minutes, the intercom from the forward cabin crackled. Jerry flung a worried look at Napoleon Solo. He smiled back at her, trying to make her feel better. He knew he was wasting his time. She was too intelligent not to know how ridiculously short the odds were here. It all boiled down to suicide, even on Uncle's humanitarian terms. Waverly had remained in London long enough to repair the details of the plan. Remember, he had cautioned in his usual fatherly way, you better drop in as close as possible to your target. Dig up one coffin. If it contains anything other than a corpse, Radio the plane to make a fast pickup and get out of there. You know what you have to do. Failing that, the bomber will carry a payload. That could help. Yes, it would be easy, Solo reflected, like dropping in for tea with the Grand Duchess. The radio's working fine, Jerry Terry said flatly. The roar of the bomber engines was like far-off thunder. Good, Kuriakin said. Communications mean a lot with this trip. Kiriakin, she whispered suddenly, can you make yourself scarce, please? 
He grinned, not offended. I'll see if there's any coffee left in the commissary. He shouldered down the aisle, going forward, his pack and parachute making him seem pounds heavier. Jerry Terry slid into the seat beside Solo. He turned from contemplation of the dark sky beyond the wings. Stinker, she hissed. Who, me? He said banteringly. Keep it up. Smile, big hero. You could get killed on this stunt, you know that? Two to one, old Skullface is sitting down there just waiting for you to come back. You're so irresistible in your own unforgettable way. Am I really? He said, keeping a smile from creeping across his face. Oh, Napoleon. She crumpled against him, all the anger gone out. Why do you have to be so irresistible? I was doing fine until you showed up. You know that? Men don't mean that much to me. Really? And they do now? He asked softly, brushing her forehead with his lips. Yes. No. Oh, you know what I mean. Jerry, just listen to me. Yeah, you're going to tell me to be brave. If you tell me to be brave, I'm going to spit in your eye. No, I wasn't going to say that. She pushed away from him, searching his eyes. No, you wouldn't. What were you going to say, Napoleon? He stared at her soberly. I owe this one to Stuart Fromes and to a lot of other people. You understand? Yes, I think I do. Plus, I have no intention of dying. Believe it. She recognized what he was trying to say, despite the mockery of his curved smile. You're still a stinker, Solo. Of course I am. The intercom came alive again. Five minutes! They kissed. A quick, warm kiss. Jerry Terry sighed and brushed a bright strand of hair from her face. Then Kiriakin had come back, almost apologetically, checking his equipment and gear one final time. I'm sorry, but it is just about time. One minute to zero, the intercom said. They stood in line beside the bailout door, their drop line secured to the long bar parallel to the cabin. The voice on the intercom began a countdown. Solo did not look back at the girl. He stared into the darkness, yawning beyond the fringe of the air door. Kiryakin was right behind him, the dour face happy. He was idly humming something that sounded vaguely Russian. A gloomy, low refrain. The slipstream made Solo's flying suit billow. He concentrated on the voice of the intercom. Nine. Eight. Seven. Six. Six seconds to eternity. And the solution of Stuart Frome's problem. And then five. Had he really been right, or was it all a game? And then four. Three. Three to success or death. Two. One. He stepped through the air door and was caught by the wind, his line releasing him. Darkness sprang up to meet him. The engine's roar moved on, and he was falling. Falling. The dark world over Orangeburg waited to meet his hurtling body.
Solo came down with a lurch on a rising hillock of ground. Luckily, he had missed the trees. His body rolled, the shrouds of his chute picking up the worst of a brisk wind which billowed the silken folds back to umbrella shape. He scrambled erect, fighting the breeze, pulling the shroud lines to him, shortening the bursting strength of the wind. Soon he had collapsed the chute and unbuckled the harness, standing on the thing before it could sail away into the darkness of the night. He searched the sky for Kiriakin, happy to see the white mushroom of his chute making contact with the ground less than 300 yards away. Elatedly, he balled up his pack and hurried toward his fellow agent. You could never be sure about a drop. The unexpected was always likely to happen when you least expected it. Kiriakin had mastered his own difficulties by the time he had reached him. They shook hands warmly, glad to be alive, and set about burying their silken passports to Germany. From on high came the muffled boom of the bomber as it flashed on for a 15-minute run toward the Russian border. On its return flight, another 15 minutes, it would attempt to make contact with them. That gave Solo and Kiriakin exactly 30 minutes to find Orangeburg, dig up one grave, and reach a decision. One half hour to discover if they were right or wrong about the cemetery sleeping quietly in the lowlands beyond Oberteisendorf. Kiriakin tamped the earth down on the remainder of his parachute. He grunted in satisfaction and replaced the entrenching tool on the hook fastened to his pack. The wind billowed his flying suit as he turned to Solo. It's your expedition, Napoleon. All expenses paid. I made the cemetery out due north of us, according to the compass. Maybe a thousand yards? Not a bad drop, considering. Do you recognize anything yet? It's hard to tell. Landmarks at night are always a fooler. But there's a reasonable familiarity about the neighborhood. Shall we go? Let's, grinned Kiriakin, his teeth flashing in the darkness. I have not dug a grave in years. They worked toward the direction Solo's wrist compass indicated, finding the going amazingly even. The land was low and flat, and undisturbed by foliage of any kind. Had it been a moonlit night, it would have been a cakewalk. Yet the extreme darkness was a blessing in disguise. They were, after all, in enemy territory, Golgotha's backyard. And while the possibility of landmines, booby traps, and electronic alarm systems was not to be discounted, there was no time to worry about incalculables. They pushed on, finding the ground easy to traverse, watching the shadowy distance unfold before them identifying each indistinguishable clump of earth and darkness as a potential enemy until they reached it. Solo had his automatic pistol at ready. A nighthawk cawed once, and they both waited for the telltale sound of men moving that might follow. But none came. They moved on. The earth narrowed, and the high walls of a gorge rose about them, only to level off into more flatland. Solo spotted a familiar rise in the terrain, and his hopes rose with it. Something about the topography was eminently right now. Yes, yes, there it was. The earth stopped, and suddenly a long, knee-high bunker of concrete was before them. Here and there, a gleaming tombstone winked white in the darkness, its stone angles catching random stabs of reflected light. Napoleon, Kiriakin whispered. Yes, Orangeburg. Let's find a dead one. Right. No sense in pushing our luck. 
We'll take the first one we come across. I want to stay as close to the wall as possible. Check. They slipped over the wall, careful to keep their many items of equipment from making undue noises. Their boots made contact with soft, dry ground. The even, terraced nature of the earth was not lost on them. A row of headstones, barely 25 yards away, poked eerily into view. The utter desolation of Orangeburg was now readily apparent. An almost palpable silence hung over the cemetery, an aura of everlasting stillness. Solo had seen Orangeburg from the air and understood the vast size of the place. Yet down here, the sensation was one of telescoping in size, as if in microcosm. It was only another burying place, like a million other nameless ones all over the world. It was an odd sensation. The miles had shriveled down to the 25 yards that was as far as his eyes could make out in the darkness. Were it not for the silvery shafts of the headstones just before them, they might have stood in any gloomy, vacant lot. There seemed to be no caretaker's house or night watchman to contend with. Yet it was impossible to tell. They would have to operate as though discovery were imminent, and they might have to shoot their way out at any second. Sola reached the headstone that was closest, a square slab of marble, barely knee-high. It was placed directly between two oblong arches of granite. Here, he whispered, unfastening his shovel from the pack on his back. This one will do. The smaller, the better. Kiriakin nodded and moved abreast of him. Solo bent down and cupped his pencil flash, beaming it directly onto the slab. The engraved old English lettering on the stone was bold and final in its epitaph. Wilhelm Van Meyer, 1919 to 1959. Resquiascit in pace. Solo and exchanged dour glances. Latin and German don't exactly go together, Kiriakin muttered. No, Solo agreed, but these are a collection of books we can't afford to judge by their covers. Let's dig. Grimly, they set to easing their spades into the ground. It was tougher than they might have expected. Here on the outer perimeter of the cemetery, the earth was considerably harder. Ruefully, Solo now remembered a peculiarity of burying grounds. The borders of most of them tended to be the less ideal ground for internment, which was why most vaults and crypts turned up at entranceways and gateways of cemeteries, not because the richest corpses wanted to be showed up front. Still, it should be only a matter of moments if there were no interruptions. They dug quickly, making a dark mound of uncovered earth to one side of the slab. It didn't take long. Solo's spade thunked hollowly on a box of some kind. The sound spurred them on. Soon they had cleared a sufficient amount of space about the top of a simple pine coffin. The box had not been six feet down. Three was much nearer the mark. I swear, if there's a skeleton in there, I promise to defect to the Russians, Kiriakin said. Fair enough, and I'll do the Watusi on Macy's window on Christmas Day. You ready? Ready. The lid came off, pried loose by their straining fingers, after Solo had raised a claw hammer about the edges to speed things along. There was a creak of wood, and suddenly the lid was free. Overhead, the wind sighed across the graveyard as Solo thumbed his pencil flash on once again. 
and played its beam over the contents of the coffin. A twinkling galaxy of clustered stars lay revealed in the dime-sized circle of light. Round silver balls, identical with the one placed between the toes of Stuart Frome's corpse, they lay boxed by the thousands in the coffin before their eyes. The coffin was filled almost to the lid, level with them. They were like some mammoth collection of ball bearings, saved by a fanatic collector of the things. But Solo knew they were nothing so harmless as all that. Bingo, said Solo, and that's the end of our search. Napoleon, Kiriakin said in an odd, tight voice, don't move too fast. We're being infiltrated upon, and though I hate to say so, we're surrounded. Solo cursed and turned the pocket flash off, rolling to the ground. Yet even as he did so, the dark cemetery lit up with the brightness of full daylight as powerful searchlights trained their traveling beams on the headstones that marked the bogus resting place of Wilhelm Van Meyer. You will stand as you are and do nothing! The funereal voice of the man called Golgotha yelled hollowly across the open ground. Or you will most certainly die before we have a chance to talk again. Chapter 16. Golgotha Again The searchlights were blinding. Caught in the merciless exposure, Solo and Kiriakin were like two shafts sticking in a mammoth circular dartboard. Beyond the dazzling glow of the beams, once their eyes had become adjusted to the light, they could barely make out the tall shadows of the men behind the glare. Solo raised his arms, blinking his eyes to clear them, saying out of the side of his mouth to Kiriakin, Let me do the talking. Kiriakin, grotesquely unreal in his flying suit, loaded down with equipment, the walkie-talkie hung from his throat like a lantern, nodded slightly. Golgotha! Solo called. Can you hear me? It's important that you do. There was a murmuring rumble of voices from the direction of the glare. Then came a fierce German guttural for silence, and the metallic, almost lazy voice of Golgotha floated on the night air. Yes, Mr. Soto, I hear you. What do you propose to say? Solo blinked in the lights. Tell your army not to fire at us. We're wired with explosives. Enough to blow this cemetery and all of us to Berlin and back. Let me make this very clear. Shoot us and destroy yourself. Should I repeat the message? A hard, mocking laugh rode the wind. Really, my dear Solo, such melodramatics. You would die so readily for uncle. Napoleon Solo shrugged and stared back into the lights. A tight smile held his mouth rigid. Suit yourself. Take the long shot. Tell him to shoot. We knew the risk we would take coming here. But remember, when we die, so dies your glorious plan for the element which you so cleverly stockpiled in the cemetery. Throw away your years of planning. It'll be worth it. Several of the bright, dazzling beams cut off with the suddenness of a thrown switch. The newer darkness was as pleasant and gratifying as fresh air after a long submersion of the water. 
Dimly, Solo could now make out the tall figure of Golgotha behind the remaining lights. His cloaked figure rising from the graveyard like some ghostly specter of the imagination. More importantly, there were four more uniformed figures flanking him at intervals of five yards, submachine guns at the ready. Kiriakin rumbled in his throat like a trapped lion. Solo hoped his impetuous partner would sit on his impatience to move into action. Solo, Golgotha said. I believe you. Now may I ask what sort of bargain you ask me to make for your lives? You're not suggesting I turn you loose. Napoleon Solo laughed. You heard the bomber upstairs a while ago? It dropped us off. If they don't hear from us in ten minutes, they'll know we were captured or killed, and they will go ahead with the target for tonight. I leave you to guess what that target is. There was a harsh intake of air. He saw the figure of Golgotha raise its skeletal arms and bring them down together in crackling anger. He had pegged the man correctly. To see the bubble burst after so many years of careful building would be a crushing blow. Solo was banking on Golgotha's mammoth ego to assist their escape from this deep, deep hole. Tell me, Solo! What excuse would the U.S. have for bombing a peaceful German cemetery in the middle of nowhere? Solo threw his head back and laughed. Be yourself, Golgotha. We have a sample pellet of the contents of your coffin stockpile. No matter what wreckage the bomber makes here, investigators will find enough of the pellets to justify the obliteration of a menace to world peace. Then... The evidence of Utangaville and Speyerwood will speak out loud and clear. Well, come on, hurry up. Time is very literally on the wing. Kiriakin, without a signal from Solo, unhooked his walkie-talkie and reached for the antenna. Wait! The voice of Golgotha screamed. But Solo repressed a smile of triumph. The man's voice was hesitant now. Was the bluff working? There was nothing to be done yet, not with that ring of submachine guns trained on them. It all depended on the weird brain of the devil who commanded them. Solo! I'm listening. Call the plane! Tell them you were wrong. There is nothing here. Tell them to come down and pick you up. So then what? We will bargain. What kind of bargain? I give you the United States and you give me Russia? Don't play the fool, Solo. Whatever your lofty ideals are, I'm sure you're still interested in living. Solo hesitated, making his hesitation visible and obvious. He bit his lip, flinging a look at Kiriakin. The Russian shrugged. Solo turned back to face Golgotha and the lights and the threat of the guns. Time was all that he and Kiriakin needed, really. All right, he said. I'll call, but no tricks, Golgotha. That plane is loaded with army men who won't take anything lying down. So if you have any notions about capturing the whole lot of them, forget it. He unharnessed his own walkie-talkie and set it on the ground before him. But Golgotha had stepped forward, one hand raised in authority. 
To all ears now came the powerful throb of the bomber, the roar of its engines returning from the Russian border, blasted toward the cemetery. Just a moment, Golgotha said icily. I wish to hear whatever you have to say to them. Come ahead, Solo said. It's your party. As he waved his arm, the gesture allowed the concealed trench knife strapped upside down on his forearm to slide handle first into the palm of his hand. Yes, Golgotha said. I shall come. But do not, I warn you, commit the mistake of treachery. Death is not such a fear to me that I will not save myself for the last laugh. You will blow up, you say, but I do not think you would have risked the parachute jump thus armed. Yet I cannot afford to guess, so I parry with you. All I lose for the moment is time which is not so precious to me as it is to you. I find it hard to believe your barber would destroy the field with men such as yourself in doubt. But we shall see. So make your call, but remember, you are covered by four submachine guns. He came forward across the ground, skirting a tombstone, his ghastly figure unreal in the lights. Karyakin, who was seeing him for the first time, stifled an oath. Even Solo had to admit that Golgotha, hard to take under ordinary circumstances, was a leftover from a very bad nightmare when seen in a searchlight-flooded cemetery. Golgotha halted about ten feet away from them. He pointed a bony forefinger. "'Call the Baba!' he said hollowly. Solo swished on the walkie-talkie. It hummed with static until he found the circuit that Jerry Terry was tuned in on. Carefully, while his brain raced, his right hand balanced the handle of the trench knife. Kiriakin had abandoned his set. He was staring at the four shadows behind the glare of the lights. Solo knew Kiriakin was busy, too, but he wished fervently that he knew exactly in what way. Baker, this is sugar, Solo said distinctly into the mouthpiece. Baker, this is sugar. Over. The walkie-talkie hummed with static. Solo strained for the answer that he knew would not come. He was keeping his forefinger on the receiving lever, using only the second half of the set. The bomber and Jerry Terry would hear his voice, but the answer would never sound from the set. He hoped hard that neither Golgotha nor any of his minions had any previous experience with the M1 Army walkie-talkie. Baker, this is sugar, he repeated, letting desperation enter his voice. Come in, please. He was sure Karyakin had tumbled to what he was doing, but he turned to him and winked. Something's wrong. I can't reach the plane. Let me try my set, Karyakin agreed readily. Golgotha muttered hollowly in his throat. You seek to trick me. He stared up at the heavens, unable to see the bomber or its riding lights, though the roar of the plane filled the heavens. Solo turned, his arms outstretched. Don't be stupid, he gritted. They'll blow us up if they don't hear from us soon. What time is it, Karyakin? We have three minutes left, 
the Russian said in an odd voice. Stop talking, for God's sake. I'm trying to contact them now. Tension is a curious thing. Solo had worked hard for it, building an uneasiness in Golgotha and his followers, knowing that when it finally enclosed them in its sweaty palm, the odds in favor of him and Kiriakin getting out alive would go up. Golgotha had his dream of world conquest. He had Thrush and his agents to help him. But now these men of flesh and bone stood in a stockpile cemetery in the middle of the night, listening to the roar of a U.S. Army bomber, which at any moment might blow them all to bits. Solo knew the human mind. Someone was bound to break. Something had to give. Bitte, a voice pleaded hoarsely from the ring of guns and lights. They waste valuable time. Shaking with rage, Golgotha spun on the voice. Silence! He screamed. Who dares question my authority? For that brief second while his cloaked back was to Solo, Golgotha's body was a barrier against the threat of the submachine guns. Kiriakin spotted the split-second opportunity as soon as Solo did. At the same instant they moved. Solo leapt for Golgotha. Kiriakin grabbed for the hand grenades taped to his harness straps. A high cry of warning split the night, but there was no time for any of Golgotha's men to dare a shot. Solo swept Golgotha backwards, forcing the trench knife to the man's neck, digging his knee into the cloaked figure where he had thought the small of his back should be. His first intention had been to use Golgotha as a shield for the safe travel of himself and Kuriakin from the cemetery. But now there was no need for that. Golgotha let out a strangled cry of rage. No machine gun barked, and Solo had his sudden startling answer. They would not shoot if it meant the death of their leader. But more than that, Kiriakin now had free reign. A metallic hand grenade, looking like a mottled egg, flipped in an arc toward the group behind the lights. Solo bore Golgotha to the ground and burrowed deep, but the man came with him, scratching and tearing his hands like claws. They found his throat, twisting away from the trench knife as Solo thrust savagely. He had forgotten. The blade clanged tinnily, and he cursed himself for not remembering the oddness of this man with the burned, withered body. Some sort of protective chain mesh, collar encircled that fiercely ravaged throat. Then there was no time to think. The grenade detonated with a bursting, blinding roar of metal and fragments. The men screamed hideously before the explosion trailed off into a dying gurgle of sound. A submachine gun stuttered now, its coughing noise popping like fireworks across the open ground. Kiriakin yelled something, and another grenade echoed the thunder of the first one. Glass shattered, and the earth seemed to lift in a soaring gravitational pull that left Solo feeling weak and giddy. Golgotha's lanky, heavy weight pinned him to the ground. In the darkness, he heard Kiriakin rushing toward them. The Russian was panting. Napoleon, are you all right? And then the sharp, unmistakable cough of a hand pistol. A single sound cracked just above Solo, and he heard Kiriakin blurt in pain and wonder. He blundered to his feet, his ears still pounding from the too-close explosion. 
His eyes made out the shadowy, weaving form of Golgotha heading across the smoking cemetery. Kiriakin's voice was close to his feet. Get him, Napoleon. Don't mind me. It's just a shoulder wound. I'll call the bomber before it's too late. Solo hesitated only a second, and then set sail across the cemetery, skirting the mangled corpses of Golgotha's hirelings, barely able to make out the bobbing, weaving, cloaked figure of the man who had designed a cemetery as a warehouse for a weapon that could enslave the world. Golgotha was a ghastly shadow dancing past the tombstones of the Orangeburg graveyard. Chapter 16 Orangeburg Unlimited The trail ended. Even in the darkness he had been able to keep Golgotha's shadow in sight, and then as he stumbled across a sudden dip in the terrain and came on panting, Golgotha was gone. It was as if the mists and the fog had swallowed him alive. Bitterly, Solo searched the grounds, but it was hopeless. Endless rows of tombstones mocked him helplessly. He scanned the earth for some clue to the passage of the ghoul, yet the earth had swallowed him up. Solo knew full well where Golgotha had gone, underground, to that damned tunnel with the sliding slab doors, but finding it in this darkness without knowing the way would be impossible. The sighing wind seemed to mock his thoughts. Defeated, he made his weary way back through the maze of grave markers. There was no time to dally. Golgotha could have gone for reinforcements. He might be back soon, loaded for bear. Overhead, the blast of the bomber echoed across the skies. He hurried back to where he had left Kuriakin. That was the main concern now that and wiring this deceptive hell spot with explosives. Golgotha's stockpile had to go. There was a bitter, acrid odor in the air when he reached the spot where Kiriakin lay. The Russian's pallor was evident, as was the first aid swab planted squarely to his left shoulder. Solo paid a quick visit to the dead minions to make sure none of them were stirring. Satisfied, he got back to Kiriakin. How's the shoulder? Sulfa and morphine. I'll hold down. Good. I lost the Halloween man back there somewhere. Chances are one of the graves is a dummy passageway leading underground, but it would take us a couple of days to find it, and I wasn't about to play eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Can you navigate? Yes, I think so. Did you call the girlfriend? Kiriakin nodded. They'll circle for another 20 minutes. Pick us up at 2100 precisely. We've got just about time to do what we came to do. I suggest a five-minute fuse just in case. Sounds splendid. Come on. Kiriakin swayed to his feet. They missed a bet not mining this place. Not really. It was too risky. Plenty of German boys would find this a nice place to picnic. Besides, Thrush had nothing to worry about. They never could have guessed that Stuart Frohms would pinpoint the spot for us the way he did. That's true. Napoleon, let's hurry before I pass out from loss of blood. They worked in quick expert silence for a full 15 minutes. The nitro jelly, each pound affixed with a blasting cap, was advantageously placed in the northern, southern, eastern, and western extremities of the cemetery. These in turn were cross-wired to the main course of the explosion. 
Solo strung the wires into a clock device, squarely placed in the heart of the cemetery. The jelly by itself would never do the job, but along with it they planted precisely calculated quantities of the Uncle Fire Explosive X-757. Six ounces of that was sufficient to raise a four-story building. A pound of it should raise merry old hell with Orangeburg. Solo set the clock device and filled his pockets with samples of the pellets from Wilhelm Van Meyer's coffin. The old man would have my hide if I didn't bring him back some souvenirs. Kiriakin consulted his watch, shaking his head. God knows how much of this stuff is here. They may have filled a thousand coffins, and then they... He winced, holding his shoulder. Solo eyed him. You think five minutes is enough for you, Elia? Just driving the polium. Five it is, then. Come on. Let's go. Time. They didn't wait. They fled back to the low wall in the darkness, clambered over and headed for the rendezvous point with the bomber. Even now they could hear the steady symphony of its flight somewhere in the darkness overhead. Solo steadied Kiriakin at one point and led him quickly across the hard ground. Their boots touched the meadows again. The gloom had dissipated somewhat here in the flatlands. Still, the mists and clouds did not vanish entirely. Both men were concentrating on the cemetery behind them. Suppose something went wrong with the timing device. It had happened before. It could happen again. Nothing and no one was infallible. And there was always the unpleasant possibility that the mysterious Golgotha had returned to the spot of their handiwork and had only waited for them to leave to destroy the mechanism. They stumbled on over the hard ground. Time was passing quickly. Surely the five minutes' time allowed for the fuse had already passed. Napoleon, don't talk, just walk. The plane, there it is. Ahead, looming on the lighter patch of ground, was the mammoth bird which had dropped them into Golgotha's graveyard. The savage backwash of propellers had flattened the blaze of grass like a field of rice to be reaped. Solo helped Kiriakin toward the ship, waiting for the sound that did not come. The air door was flung backwards, spilling light onto the darkened field. A helmeted officer stood framed in the entrance, beckoning. Solo saw Jerry Terry poised at his shoulder, peering anxiously into the darkness. He began to run, pulling Kiriakin with him. The shadow of the ship loomed in his eyes, bigger than his fondest hopes, larger than the wildest dreams of a monster named Golgotha. Solo? Jerry Terry called. Is that you? Napoleon! Ilya Kiriakin's voice came bitterly close to his ear. I make out six minutes. Something has gone wrong. We need to... Solo laughed. I made it seven minutes, not five. I didn't know how much he would slow us up, you lame wolfhound. Seven minutes, Kiriakin echoed. Why you double-crossing? The rest of the diatribe was lost in the distant thunderclap of the violent explosion rocking the flatlands behind them. The ground heaved, the earth trembled. The wind increased in fury and velocity. A high keening of destruction filled the shadows of the night. Orangeburg lit up the sky. And Jerry Terry fell laughing and sobbing right into Napoleon Solo's outstretched arms. The bomber crew, helping them on board, exchanged impressed looks. That's it? Huh? A freckle-faced sergeant asked, 
poking a thumb in the direction of the blast. That is it, yes, Ilya Karyakin said flatly, but his eyes were shining. That's it, all right, Solo agreed, surrounding Jerry Terry's lithe body with his arms, but it's also the sound of something else. What's that? Sergeant Freckles wanted to know. Solo stared at him, no longer smiling. It's the sound of a man named Stuart Fromes having the very last laugh there is. Freckles grinned. That's the best kind of laugh there is. Sometimes, fella. Sometimes. The air door closed and the bomber rumbled forward, aiming its streamlined nose toward the east. Motors thundered, propellers churned, temporarily drowning out the reverberating destruction behind them. The Orangeburg Cemetery was dying noisily. Napoleon? Jerry Terry said seriously. I want to apologize. What for? He asked, still studying the nice sky over Orangeburg from the port window. I behaved like a kid back there. That Fairmont woman. I'm sorry I acted like a schoolgirl. You did what you had to do. Thanks, he said dryly. But you're not a Girl Scout. People die in our business. They have to. Being a woman doesn't change things one way or the other. Am I forgiven? Completely, he said, looking toward Orangeburg. A bright orange flash burst skyward, lighting up the darkness. Burn in hell, Golgotha, Napoleon Solo whispered fervently. Chapter 17 Another Solo Performance Really, Solo? Partridge protested in a low voice so that no one else standing at the bar of the Paris Overseas Press Club could hear him. I do think you could fill me in a bit about this Orangeburg thing. Napoleon Solo shrugged characteristically. I thought the AP covered it rather thoroughly. Partridge made a face. Oh, yes. Strange explosion in German cemetery. Whole bloody place destroyed. Authorities at a loss and are confounded, etc., etc. Really, Solo? Really nothing, Billy. Yes, of course. I suppose you're right. But you chaps in the field always seem to get the best of it. Old I may be, and I do have a touch of arthritis in several places. But you see, one wants for a little excitement now and then. Keeps the endocrines working properly and all that. Solo smiled. I suppose it does at that. I usually prefer beautiful women, though. <laughs> like your girlie from Army Intelligence. You're getting warm. Partridge smiled sourly. Not as warm as you, I'll wager. Napoleon Solo slid off his stool. And here's our beautiful leading lady now. Coming toward them was the vision who went by the name of Geraldine Terry. She was tall and athletically graceful, in a beige woolen sheath dress. Her long copper hair fell neatly swept to one side in a fashionable one-shoulder fall. Her firm high breasts made more than one man at the bar turn to cast appreciative eyes at her. Hello, Miss Terry. Buy you a drink, said Partridge, brightening. Thank you, Billy. You may. She smiled as Solo. Am I late? He made a show of consulting his watch. Exactly three seconds, I counted. Partridge sniffed the air as if he didn't approve of all this 
romantic nonsense between fellow agents. Yet even as he ordered a martini for Miss Terry, he was wistfully approving of her fine figure. Rather lean for his tastes, but then again, Americans did tend to starve themselves for their appearance. Soto, he began again manfully. Yes, Billy. Solo's dark eyes mocked him, waiting. Confound the fellow. He was as tightly buttoned as a cheap ulster. Forget it. Passing vault. I'll mail you a report, Billy. Scout's honor. Jerry Terry laughed and speared the olive in her martini. What shall we drink to? Partridge reached for his glass. I have one. Let's drink to agents who keep their mouths sealed and don't confide in fellow agents. Ouch, said Solo. They each sipped their drinks. Partridge cocked an eye at Geraldine Terry. And you, my girl, back to the States? She looked sober for an instant, and then it passed. Yes, I'm afraid so. I have to check back to the Pentagon by Friday. We have two whole days, then, Sola reminded her, staring at her evenly across the rim of his glass. That can be a lifetime when the people are right. Before she could answer, a white-jacketed houseboy appeared at Partridge's elbow. The Englishman scanned him dourly. Yes, garçon. Pardon, the Frenchman apologized. Is this gentleman with you, Napoleon Solo? Solo tensed. He suddenly had the old feeling of the world closing in again, enfolding him. Trouble never knew the time of day, the hour, or the minute. Yes, he said tightly. I'm Napoleon Solo. The houseboy smiled. Fun called sir. Long distance, a Mr. Alexander Weverly. He said it was urgent. The man from Uncle kissed Jerry Terry on the cheek as he walked swiftly by her to take the call. The End This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. We hope that you've enjoyed this Uvula Audio presentation of The Man from Uncle by Michael Avalone. The opening and closing themes, as you may have recognized, were from the actual 1960s TV show The Man from Uncle and composed by Jerry Goldsmith. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com. You can also become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio. Just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook, or you can do it from the main Uvula Audio webpage. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website, for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcasts for free from there. If you like our podcast, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the secure PayPal links at uvulaaudio.com. From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you. <laughs>